Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke chapter 18? We've come to verses 31 through 34. There could be no greater instruction, frankly, than what is taught in this passage for, for fathers and for fathers to teach their sons because Jesus here is, is handing off an eternal truth that must be grasped if one is to enter into the kingdom of God, if one is to have eternal life, if one is to live forever, what is here must be understood and believed. This is Christ's third prediction of his death. So let's look at the whole passage and then I want to bring three things to you from the passage. Then having taken the 12 aside, he said to them, look, we go up to Jerusalem and all things having been written about the son of man will be accomplished for he will be betrayed to the Gentiles and will be mocked and will be spit upon and having flogged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And they understood none of these things. And this saying or this matter was hidden from them. And they knew not the things being spoken. This is the final leg of the journey to Jerusalem and then to the cross. great deal of time in Judea, then some time in Galilee and Perea, but now back on the road to Jericho and across the Jordan River and on up to Jerusalem. Because it's the Passover season and the 12 were expecting to go, this was not something terribly unusual. But Christ is trying to take these 12. They will be the first and foundational preachers of the church. We are, we are founded on what Christ has done for us, on the person of Christ, on what he says he will accomplish there in Jerusalem, which has been written about in the Old Testament. So it is paramount that these 12 understand what's about to happen. To this point, they, they don't get it. And here the passage says they're, they're still not getting it. But there will have to come a time when they will recall what Christ said, that he would be treated terribly and killed. This adds to other things that he had said previously about to whom he would be delivered to, uh, over to and and. and other details of his arrest and so forth. But now some of the really gruesome details of his death. They understood none of these things. Hidden from them. They didn't know the things that were being spoken. Well, let's look at it. I want to say three things. Number one, the passion of Christ is part of a carefully devised eternal plan for the salvation of his people. 
Uh, maybe someday I'll deliver a message on the eternal covenant. There's a plethora in both testaments of scriptures detailing the eternal covenant with whom it was made, Father and Son, what it was about, what it would deliver, the cost of it, what it would produce, and so forth. The eternal covenant made in a time, or not even in a time, in a realm before time that we cannot understand, and the Father would give to the Son His people, His own, and that has been the purpose, the mission of God. That's been the purpose of time. God is delivering to the Son His people, those who are His. Now, with the creation of time and space, a carefully devised plan that had been brought into existence, however you want to say it, before time, now begins to be accomplished and there's a progress to it. And so this is the story of Scripture. We learn about the whole thing all the way through Scripture. It's a carefully devised eternal plan for the salvation of his people. So let's look at this. Then having taken the 12 aside, he said to them, look, we go up to Jerusalem and all things have been written about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Jesus is saying to his 12, this special 12. There were other disciples, but these were the 12. He says, we are going now to fulfill prophecy. And they're baffled. I'll end up on, in this message, hopefully, on the bafflement and why I'm so baffled that they were baffled. That said, it is so important that the 12 begin to get a grip on the things that are about to happen when they get to Jerusalem. Christ is going to die. It is such a foreign thought to the Jews that the Messiah would die, especially that he would die at the hands of a Gentile power whom he was supposed to defeat. In, in, their, in their error, this whole thing was upside down to them, and we'll talk more about that as we go through uh, this message. We go up to Jerusalem. Everything is going to be accomplished. There's so much said about the first coming of Christ, the suffering that precedes the victory of the second coming. Uh, it started out in Genesis 3. It goes on from there through Exodus 12, and, and it goes from, from there to oh, Psalm 22 and, and Psalm 64 and or just I mean I can Isaiah 53 Daniel 7 Zechariah 11 and 12 
and, and others that just don't enter into my mind just yet, but there's this whole doctrine of the first coming of the suffering Christ. The suffering Christ. And it was in the Old Testament. And it was presented by their prophets. And it was presented to Israel. And of all people, those who had the oracles of God, those who had the scriptures, those to whom God had divinely given his word so that this word could be preached and taught and that the illustrations contained therein could be taught through the tabernacle and then through the temple. This so very important doctrine of the first coming of Christ is lost to them. Lost to Why? It was not just in one or two places. It is replete through the scriptures that Christ would suffer. So it's part of a, a carefully devised plan. I'm going to tell you. In my view, there are five things to which all of history has been moving or is moving. Number one, the birth of Christ. All of history, I don't care what you read in the history books, prior to 0 AD or whenever you want to 6 BC, whenever you want to 4 BC, whenever you want to date it, everything in history, all of the wars and everything in history was moving to the birth of Christ. Such a simple thing out there in a, uh, in a, in a manger, you know, in the, in the stable and, and, and all that simple little stuff. The world powers, totally ignorant. But everything in the world, in world history, was moving to that moment. Now, after the birth of Christ, everything in the world was moving to the cross. Everything was moving to the cross. Nothing could stop it. If all of the great powers of the East somehow developed the ability to march and join the powers of Rome and Greece and whatever of the West and then declare to mankind that they're going to kidnap Jesus and he will never go to the cross. It wouldn't happen. Everything in the world from his birth was moving to his death. And this is why Jesus says it's going to be accomplished. The world is not going to stop it. They're going to have to understand. It's going to be tough to watch. It's going to be horrible to witness it's going to be humiliating. The one we've followed and put all of our, we've invested our lives in this guy. And he dies such a shameful, horrible defeat, it seems, on the cross. It's just awful. But the whole Bible talked about, I mean, even Isaiah 53, Psalm 2, you thought those guys were at the foot of the cross. So, from the death of Christ, everything in the world moved for three days to the resurrection of Christ. Nothing would stop it. They tried, you know, they rolled the stone, put guards. They couldn't stop it. Everything from the resurrection of Christ in the world moved to the ascension of Christ because the resurrected Christ now assumes his high priestly duty. He died to save us. He lives to keep us. So we live in this wonderful day where people come to Christ by faith. God calls, God speaks, God draws. The gospel is preached. The church is, is working for, yea, these hundreds of years. And since the ascension of Christ, with the sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, 
Christ indwelling by his spirit the church and sending us forth with our marching orders infallibly calling his people to himself until the last one is brought in and the world from the ascension of Christ has been moving to the second coming of Christ and nothing can stop it. We should, and I have this I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else, we shouldn't be so depressed and disappointed over the way the things are happening in the world. We were told they were going to happen this way. So, everything in the world, we should rejoice in that. Everything in the world is moving to the second coming of Christ. So that, on that at that infinitely glorious moment, Christ, when the Father says to the Son, go get your bride. And the Son finally is tall, told, conquer the world and set up your kingdom. Nothing can stop it. I submit to you that perhaps part of, the, part of the reason of the gathering of armies at Armageddon is to defy what has been widely reported as the return of the Christ. The Bible tells us where he's coming down to. He's going to have this touchdown point. The Mount of Olives. So it just might be that the, all of the Gentile powers with all of their missiles and all of their rifles and all of their laser beams and whatever. And God is up in heaven laughing. Psalm 2. And everything is moving to the fulfillment of prophecy. This is what Jesus is telling the 12. We are going to fulfill prophecy. Prophecy that they should have understood and should have been happy about, but they don't have any idea, as we just saw in the text. Number two, the sacrificial system will find its fulfillment in the Son of Man. For he will be betrayed to the Gentiles, mocked, spit upon, flogged, then killed. On the third day, he'll rise again. The first thing that happened after Adam and Eve sinned and were confronted in their sin by God was an animal died. God clothed them with the coats of skin. God made a sacrifice to cover the sin of the sinful. So in the sacrifice for Adam and Eve, and God was the first one who made the sacrifice, we are taught that we cannot cover our sin. Something else has to die whose righteousness must become ours that we should be sufficiently covered. Abel made a sacrifice, and we learn from the sacrifice of, of Abel that this is... The only way to God. There's only one acceptable way to God. And that really irritated Cain to the point of murdering Abel. Abraham made a sacrifice and in his sacrifice, he taught us that God will provide his own sacrifice. The God who requires the sacrifice 
will provide for himself a sacrifice. In the Passover, the sacrifice that was made there in Exodus has taught us that this sacrifice will shield us from death and give life to us. So the sacrificial system begins. These people could not have a national feast without a sacrifice. They could not perform an act of worship without a sacrifice. Day after day after day, seemingly endless sacrifices. They had to be without blemish. And it seemed like it would never end. Every time they approached God, they had to approach God via a sacrifice. So that in the time of Christ, it was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. Over and over and over, hundreds and hundreds of years, how many thousands upon ten thousands of animals were slain and blood was spilled God designed the tabernacle and then through Solomon the temple so that the world could be taught at one place the importance of sacrifice. And the, the, the lessons were given that the sacrifice had to be flawless, unblemished, and it had to die because something has to die for sin. Something has to die for you. Something has to die for me if I'm ever to escape the guilt and penalty of sin. Christ goes to the cross not long afterward the temple is laid waste. There's been no sacrificial system since then because Christ gave himself as a sacrifice. The father provided his son for the sacrifice and there is no other sacrifice that is required. Christ puts an end to this otherwise seemingly endless sacrificial system. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only Jesus. None other. But the third point I want to make is this. Christ puts an end to a la carte hermeneutics. Let me take you to your early days in the seminary. Homiletics. Well, that's putting a sermon together and then finally delivering it, a homily. <laughs> Sounds like grits, doesn't it? I guess by the time you get through with it, it's grits. Homiletics to produce a homily, a sermon. Hermeneutics is the, the interpretation of Scripture. How are you going to interpret it? You better be right. Exposition, well, that's the detailed uh, delivery of a text detail exegesis is the technical and grammatical delivery of the text and in my view if it's done right you have to put all those things together 
and then it's delivered so that every word and every phrase, every syllable, everything is covered in that text and you are immersed in that text and bathed in that text and it has to be a text that is not out of context and it is delivered properly. Let me tell you this. The church today and perhaps at other times, but this happens to be the time that I live in, the church suffers today from what I call a la carte hermeneutics. I'm going to decide the kind of Jesus that I'm going to believe in. I'm going to decide the kind of Jesus that I'm going to teach. A la carte hermeneutics. I'm going to pick this and I'm going to pick that and I'm going to take a text out of context and I'm going to build this sweet little cute thing that will appeal to the masses but is not the true picture of Christ. Not the true picture of Christ. You know, I've told you many times that I'm one of those few people who can be standing in a dark room by himself in a, in a corner and be making people mad at me. <laughs> oh, that's the truth. I feel, I have a love-hate relationship with Facebook. I hate it, but I have to look at it because people don't call the church anymore if they go to the hospital. It goes on Facebook, you know? You got to know what's happening at church. Even I have to know because it's on Facebook. So I have to look at Facebook. I have friends. Can you believe that? I have friends. <laughs> and they can unfriend you without you knowing it. Which makes you feel foolish when you find it out. But uh, I wish I'd unfriended that person first. <laughs> nah, I don't really feel that way. <laughs> now. I was in that dark room in that corner by myself, but I happened to turn on my computer and look at Facebook to see if any of my members had died or if, or if, or if any of my children were in the hospital or, or whatever. <laughs> Two people, one by messenger message. You know what I'm talking about, the private message thing. And then the other one just full-blown on a, an exchange, whatever you call that. So the first one, a private message. A dear lady, I, we, we grew up next to each other. She sends, she copies something that was on Facebook and it was a guy who said that the word homosexual is not in the Bible. And he had this, I call it a pseudo-intellectual approach. And the copy of the Bible that he had was in this real strange print, like, like early 16th century print. And it was a German Bible passage. And she said, is this true? Well, you know, so I go through this. Her, her little block that she sent me was about that big. What I sent her back was about that long. 
Uh, here it is. I said, of course, that's untrue. I said, I'm not real sure that in 16th century Germany or in 16th century England, there was a word homosexual. I don't know. I, I wasn't there. But I know the Koine Greek two times in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, 1 Timothy 1 verse 10. Word's there. God froze the Koine Greek in time and you cannot change the meaning of the word. It's always been that. Unlike English, word's always changing, right? Word conversation, for example. In King James' day, the word conversation meant the way you live. Today, the word conversation means the way you talk. So somebody can read the King James and it says, Be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And so you're thinking, oh, i got to watch what I say. That's not what it really says. You go back to the original text and it says, hey, you got to live right. Everything about your life, you got to watch it. All right? Or even in the United States. The gay 90s in 1890s meant one thing. You know where I'm headed with this. <laughs> means something else today. But Koine Greek is not that way. It just doesn't change. Man, it is, it is cemented in time. So I gave her in a private message. I didn't realize at the time how she spared me from drawing me into the exchange there. Former church member. You understand, I, don't, I didn't have a dog in this fight. I, I don't even know the people with whom he was exchanging. But he did something, he tagged me or whatever you do to draw me into it. It had my name on it. And so it comes in on my messages here. And at the top of that had the same thing that she had shown me. And he just asked the question. He said, this doesn't seem right to me. Is this true? I just answered the question. I just answered the question. The Bible speaks for itself, you know. Oh, son. <laughs> By answering what I thought was a simple question. And I didn't even, Paul wrote it. Well, God wrote it through Paul. I didn't even write it. I just gave it. I offered no, well, I could have said, I offered no opinion. He asked a question, I answered it. So, but you know, they weren't paying me for this, so I didn't go into any other. <laughs> and I want you to know <laughs> that it was, I never, it was all women who slashed me to death. Well, I know what you Southern Baptist. I, I didn't even say I was a Southern Baptist. I didn't say I was Southern. I didn't say I was Baptist. I didn't say I was a pastor. Guy asked me a question. I answered his question. Just answered it. So they must have gone and looked at me. And, I, and I'm, I'm getting whipped and spanked and scolded. And, and I thought a thousand times to respond. But daddy used to tell me, you give people like that enough rope, they'll hang themselves. 
So I, you know what I did? I just backed out. I, I didn't even want it in the first place. But every time, because my name got in there somewhere, every time there was a response, it came back over and I had to look at it. <laughs> and so there is a swath of humanity who hates me, but I'm with W.A. Criswell on this. A man is often known by those who don't like him and not just by those who like him. And I don't mind if people don't believe the Bible. And I do. I don't care if they don't like me. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm not in this thing, to, but I, I just, here it is. Here it is. Now, here's what the apostles suffered from. What I call a la carte hermeneutics. They bypassed all that Old Testament stuff that was ugly about the Christ. Oh, no, he's going to die. He's going to spill blood. They're going to kill him, nail him to a cross. They're going to laugh at him. He's going to hang there. Psalm 22, man, you'd have thought David was standing there on that day. His own people are going to pierce him. That's awful. They conveniently just selected all of those wonderful, glorious Old Testament texts about the second coming of Christ. Victorious king, whipping up on all the Gentile powers, establish a global kingdom, and everybody's going to get in line, and, and lions and lambs are going to lay down together, and a little baby's going to reach into the poisonous snake pit and reach out and play with a snake and all those things. It's going to be glorious. They completely bypassed the cross. But if you bypass the cross, you won't ever make that kingdom. This is the great lesson that Christ is trying to bring across to his disciples. They understood none of these things. This matter was hidden from them. They knew not the things being spoken. Christ was in the world another 40 days after he was resurrected. We'll see this at the end of Luke. A trailer of coming things. Christ revealed to them the scriptures. Here's how Christ taught his disciples to study and teach the scriptures. Take it all, all of it. Some of it may seem good, some of it may seem bad, some of it may seem ugly. You take all of it. Take all of the scripture. Don't leave anything out. Don't pick and choose that which you think you like and, and which you don't like and stick to that thing that you like and ignore the thing that you don't like. That won't get you anywhere. So many people today are drifting deeper and deeper into error, terrible error, so that a whole generation is growing up with an idea about Jesus that is false, wrong. The glorious Christ, one of the responses to that thing that I mentioned a while ago was this woman ranting and raving about love. Love. My Jesus is love. I hope they point that woman out to me <laughs> at the last day. 
You have to be careful about how you define love and properly define it according to the scriptures. It doesn't matter what you think about love. The only thing that matters is what the Bible says about love and the love of Christ. Christ put an end to what I call a la carte hermeneutics. You can't pick and choose. You better stick to the whole Bible. Stick to the whole thing. Take a grasp of the whole picture. Keep reading it over and over again. You'll grow. The Bible, Peter says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came into this world to save sinners. The Bible says He loved His own and gave His life for them. If you'll admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus and call on Him to save you. And if you've never done that, but you feel the need to today, let me tell you, God will save you. God will save you according to his word. God will save you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you'd come to Christ today in just a moment, I'll ask everyone to stand and we'll sing. And on that first verse, you come, take me by the hand, just say, Pastor, I wanna be saved. Let me pray with you. Maybe you're here and you're already a Christian. God is leading you to come and be a part of this fellowship. To be a part of, of who we are. This is where God wants you to study His Word. To fellowship with other believers. To serve Christ in a meaningful way. You come. We'll take care of all the details of membership if that's what God wants in your life. Father God in heaven, use this invitation for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, okay?